0: that we might grow to be complete in Christ.
1: Sitting there in my apartment looking out of the sliding glass door, I was aware of the film that covered the glass. It was because the glass had not been cleaned for some time. No one had used the place for a while, So no one had taken any pains to make sure the place was spick and span, as my mother used to say. In other words, it needed some TLC, some tender loving care. The view was expansive. I could see everything outside. The colors were the same as always, but something was missing. The sky was blue. The clouds floating by were white and fluffy. The grass was green and the buildings opposite were the same tans and dark reddish brown roof as they had always been, but I still felt like something was missing. What could it be? I sat and wondered the question. Obviously, I didn't have anything else more pressing on my time commitments than to ponder the imponderable. The answer was there. I could sense that there was a simple answer. Why did it evade me? I looked again. Nothing had changed. I took my glasses off and found the microfiber cloth that the optician had given me and rubbed the lenses very carefully. That process only made me even more conscious when I put my glasses back on of the dirty glass in front of me. My vision was even more startled by the panorama opposite where I was sitting. Something had to be done. I stood to my feet, went to the laundry area where I secured a bucket, some soap, a few rags and went back to the dirty glass proceeded to do what needed to be done. I washed the glass thoroughly. I dried it thoroughly. I stood back to see the results of my labor, and several things came to mind, which I'll share with you in a moment. After I had dried the glass, I stood back to observe the change, if any. There must have been some kind of change. I had applied myself diligently to the task. My labor was focused and directed at the glass that had not been given too much attention lately. As a matter of fact, I don't know when it was last given any attention. It was allowed to gradually become more and more coated with salty dust. Dust that stuck to the glass, impairing my vision. With some focused elbow grease, I had removed that layer of grime that was affecting my ability to see through the glass as clearly as I could have. Through this process, I realized what the problem had been. I knew something was wrong, but it didn't immediately occur to me what it was. Having now cleaned the glass, I could see clearly through it. The grass was still green. The sky was still blue. Everything was essentially the same as it was before but with one huge difference. My view now unhindered and unfiltered. There was nothing intervening between itself and my view. My view was suddenly crisp. The scene was sparklingly clear and bright and gloriously glittering in unadulterated brilliance. The day was sunny and so everything reflected the glory of the day. Before the washing exercise, I had not had the benefit of the full splendor of the scene. The dirt and the salt had filtered out some of the glory. I had not been privy to the full impact. Something had impacted my sight, so to speak. As I considered this thought and enjoyed the new splendor of the view, a thought slipped into my mind, ever so subtly and quietly. Our ability to see and appreciate the Lord in all of his beauty is impacted when we let things build up on our spiritual eyes. I am denied the ability to see the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. I need to go get the bucket, some water and soap and clear away the stuff that's clouding my sight. Like that hymn reminds us, we look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Someday with this message for today. Here's our pastor, Arlen Lee.
2: Good morning. Again, what a blessing to be able to fellowship with you around the Word of God this morning. And today we are once again going to be looking into that mysterious and fascinating passage in the Word of God. This is the sixth message in our ongoing exposition of the Epistle of Jude, in which he exhorts believers to contend or fight for the faith, that is, the word of God, as delivered once and all to the people of God. He is warning us about false teachers who sneak into local churches to lead gullible believers away from the truth by twisting scriptures to teaching false doctrines that will tickle the fancy of the hearers but yet provide no genuine spiritual nutrition or food for the soul. Last time, if you recall, we ended our exposition at verse 6, where Jude gives us his second historical example of how God deals with those who corrupt his truth, not only by teaching false doctrine, but also by the way they live. The first was that of the Jewish people themselves. And the second example is that of the fallen angels, which we began to explore last time in verse 6. But now in verse 7, he also gives the example of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of the divine principle that sexual immorality follows the willful rejection and corruption of divine truth, and the certainty of God's judgment upon those who commit such acts of apostasy. This is what the verse reads, Jude, verse 7, quote, In a similar way, that's just like the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire, end of quote. Now, my friends, we must not forget the context of Jude's warning. Jude felt constrained by God to describe the character and activities of godless men who secretly slip into local churches and who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and who deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord by the way they live that's Jude's first description of these men in verse 4. He then draws upon three specific historical events of God's divine judgment upon those who committed the same basic sin as these apostate teachers to show that divine judgment is certain for all those who deliberately reject and corrupt the word of God, divine truth, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Jude says that such apostates may get the applause and financial favor from undiscerning Christians today, and a few might even get caught in the hypocrisy and they might be publicly exposed. But, Jude reminds us, we can be certain that none will escape the divine judgment of God. That is Jude's message in this epistle. Now, in verse 5, it was the children of Israel that he gave as an example. In verse 6, it was the fallen angels. And now, in verse 7, it is Sodom and Gomorrah. But, and I must re-emphasize this truth, the context and emphasis is the impact of godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and who deny Jesus Christ are only sovereign and lord by the way they live. This is why Jude's use of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of the certainty of judgment is so potent and relevant to us today. Now, usually, we regard the phrase or the term sexual immorality and perversion that are mentioned here as referring specifically and only to sodomy. We see that as the only reason and cause ...for God's judgment upon these cities. This has given some preachers especially, and Christians in general, a basis for coming down extremely heavy... ...on condemning this particular sin of sodomy or homosexuality. And, while I am in no way seeking or mean to lessen this condemnation of this sinful behavior... ...I nonetheless must remind you of the Apostle Paul's loving and gracious reminder that God's love, grace, and mercy encompasses all sinners, no matter what this sin may be. Please, let me repeat that. I must remind you of the Apostle Paul's loving and gracious reminder, that God's love, grace, and mercy encompasses all sinners, no matter what this sin may be. My friends, the blood of Jesus Christ can and does wash away any sin, and every sin. Listen to the apostles' glorious words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. And again, I remind you, this is God speaking directly to us. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Now notice that phrase. This is in the past tense. That is what some of you were. But listen to these glorious words now. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. End of quote. Paul, my friend, is saying here that anyone, regardless of the type of sin he or she is involved in as way of life, can be washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ if that person calls upon the name of Christ for salvation. That's the core of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sin, for your sin, for my sin, for all sin. And so there's no sin that can leave a stain that's too hard for the blood of Jesus Christ to wash out. If it's one thing we can be sure of in this world, my friend, in this world of uncertainties in which we live, it is this truth that we can be certain of. There is still power in the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all sin. What a glorious truth this is. However... Returning once more to the specific point of our text, I believe that it is a misrepresentation of the Bible as a whole to say that sodomy, which society has relabeled homosexuality, was the only cause for God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. While this sin was certainly a reason for God's judgment, it most certainly was not the only reason And I am certain that the other reasons will shock, if not anger, many Christians, especially some preachers. But if I am to be faithful to teaching the Word of God and not put myself into the same group Jude is condemning for not preaching the Word of God for what it is, the Word of God and not the Word of man, I must preach this part of the truth as well. And so, For those of you who profess to be Christians and are so strongly opposed to homosexuality, I encourage you, in fact, I implore you, please get out your Bibles so that you can read for yourself the text to which we will be looking at right now. First, Genesis chapter 18 and 19, where the event is recorded. In verse 20 of chapter 18, We have the charge against the cities repeated by God to Abraham. This is what the text says. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. End of quote. Now the word translated outcry in our text is a legal term for a petition or a complaint. Now, personally, I've always wondered who made this complaint or petition or outcry to God. Could it have been just Lot, who is described as being vexed in his soul day in and day out because of the wickedness he saw in the city? If so, then it fits well in the context that we are developing here. However, God, the text says, goes down to investigate in the form of two angels, Now, one is probably Michael, and the other many believe the pre-incarnate Christ himself. But these two angels make their inspection. Now, if you go to Judges 19, you will have a similar incident that occurred to the angels as well. But then, these angels give their verdict in chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. This is what is said. Now, I quote again the Word of God. The two men, these are actually the two angels, who took the form of man. The two men said to the Lord, Do you have anyone else here? Sons in law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that He has sent us to destroy it. Now that's the decision. The execution of this decision, or this sentence, is recorded in verses 24 and 25. Here is what the Word of God says. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. End of quote. Now, If I were to ask you right now, why did God destroy these cities? Your immediate answer would probably be because of their homosexuality or because of their sodomy. But does God himself say that? That was the only reason? Having read the book of Jude, you would probably answer yes, God did say that. And he does say it here very clearly in verse 7. Nothing can be plainer than this. These people, you would say, were destroyed because of their sexual perversions, period. Well, look with me for a moment now at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14. The prophet is speaking the word of the Lord to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Notice what he says, and I quote now the word of God. Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and they live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his wickedness. Notice carefully now the next phrase. They are all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. And he is looking specifically at the prophets. We would call them pastors and preachers today. In this context, nothing is said about sodomy or homosexuality. Yet, these religious leaders were like Sodom and Gomorrah as far as God was concerned. Now, what were these religious leaders doing? My friends, the Bible does not leave us in doubt here. It tells us very clearly what these sins were. However, we'll have to give you the answer to these questions next time, Lord willing, because our time is gone for the day. As always, this is Basili saying Sila, think and act on these things.
3: Man, his promise he will surely come and happening